Welcome travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your not-so-humble guides on the quest for RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. On our show, we feature diverse tabletop RPG systems, demonstrating them through actual plays and breaking down the rules to provide you with tips, tools, and techniques to help you navigate them. We also love bringing the content creators behind these games into the studio to give you a peek behind the curtain with relevant and insightful interviews. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world or system you're playing. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, diverse NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. When four strangers meet for the first time, they unknowingly begin to unravel tightly kept secrets about their worlds. This place sucks. This realm sucks. I don't mean to interrupt, but maybe speak about portals a little quieter. You know how some people aren't really into science and magic mixing together? That's just a story. Portals haven't existed for hundreds of years. Armed with little true knowledge, but unfathomable curiosity, these four strangers set out in search of answers and form an unlikely bond. I do see you, and I'd like to think that I'll be there when you're ready to talk about it. He kind of relaxes for the first time around the group. You keep putting yourself in danger for others, but who puts themselves in danger for you? Join Ivy, Varys, Alara, and Ziva as they dive headfirst into the unknown. Follow us at Rainbow Dice Club on your favorite streaming platform, and find us at Rainbow Dice Club wherever you get your podcasts. Do you trust me? All right, everybody. Good evening and welcome to Tabletop Journeys. Really glad to have you listening tonight. Really glad to be joined by my illustrious illustrious co-hosts on this momentous day. Our second Kickstarter just launched earlier today. A very good day one. Very happy with the results so far. Not quite funded yet, but uh, I think we are we are well on our way. I know that has been in my vision all day long. How about you, gentlemen? How are you doing today? Just shy of 50% in under 12 hours, I'll take it. I'll take it, exactly, yeah. Very, so very I'm good having day. a banner freaking day. And <laughs> thank you all out there for the support to help lift yep. me up. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. I can't say enough about the folks who've backed us so far, the many who have selected to follow this Kickstarter and are hopefully planning on going ahead and pushing the button to go ahead and back us on one level or another. It is very rewarding for the work we've already put in and for the work that's to come to see this kind of support so early on. It means the world. It really does, yeah. These Kickstarters, they are, I'd made a comment about it on Twitter and Facebook the other day that these Kickstarters are a labor of love, emphasis on the love and definitely emphasis on the labor. There, there's a lot that goes into these. And I think that for those of you that are back in the book, when this campaign funds, because it looks like we are well on our way at this point, you're going to be really happy with this book. I know I'm really happy with the content that we've already laid down. So I'm really, I'm really intrigued to go ahead and see what stretch goals we hit, how big this book is going to get, and I'm really looking forward to what this next month is going to be like. It's, oh, it runs until October 24th. So yeah, just really, really looking forward to what, what we're going to see over the next month. So if you haven't already, go ahead, go to the Kickstarter. Links will be in the show notes here. Links are all over any of our socials, all of our pages. But go there, back this Kickstarter. If you've already backed, consider a community copy for a friend or, or a family member who's gaming. If you've got a younger niece, nephew, child who, who likes to game that would love to have something like this at their table, 
even even if you wanted to pick up a hard copy so you can donate to a local TTRPG club at a local high school. These are all yeah. the kinds of things that would be really cool and, again, very much appreciated. Make a huge difference to us. Mr. Myers, I, I know Lou and, and I were talking there a whole bunch. How are you doing tonight, sir? I am fantastic. That's That was pretty much my summary of how I'm doing today is watching our Kickstarter has just kept me pumped up and excited. I'm doing pretty I'm doing pretty wonderful. Yeah, excellent. Good. And you're still in Connecticut. You have not yet roved off uh, into the great Midwest wilds again. No, we won't be heading towards the Midwest again for a bit. We'll be here until yeah. November. Yeah. And then we might mow, not might, we're definitely moseying south towards Virginia Beach and yeah, points yeah. further south as yeah. it gets colder, we will migrate. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. That sounds like a that sounds like a perfectly reasonable plan. I have uh, I have zero issue with that with that whatsoever. Without any further ado, let us go ahead and get cracking here. So tonight we are going to be talking about another question that came from one of our Patreon supporters. Again, Mr. Dave Rideout, good friend of the show. You hear him in all of our actual plays. He's very active on our Facebook page. We love Dave's fantastic player, fantastic uh, person in general, but he tossed out the question. We did an episode about world building, I think specifically around like superstitions and stuff like that a couple of weeks ago. And he asked the question about world building in general. Where do you start? How do you even start getting into world building. And so the three of us put our head together and realized, aha, we probably need to do like a world building 101 episode. And we're going to kind of take it from two different angles tonight. We're going to take it from the angle of how do you start world building? As in, what is it that you, what is it that drives you to get into world building in the first place as opposed to using pre-existing material? When does it cross over the boundary from recycling old material into world building? What's the difference there? Where's the waterfall moment when it's world building versus something else? Thing one. And then the other part of the episode is going to be that once you have had that waterfall moment, once you have crossed that threshold, once you have uh, a, a dove into the great sea that is uh, innumerable possibilities, how do you start? What are the first things that you do? How do you actually get putting pen to paper? What are the various launch points that you can use to actually begin the process? A nuts and bolts kind of argument. So one kind of a little bit more philosophical and then a little bit more nuts and bolts on the actual mechanics of world building itself. Who would like to start tonight on kind of your sense on when it is time to start world building? I see both of you nodding here on camera. Which one of you wants to get started tonight? I'll go for it. All right. Have at it, Glenn. When you're talking about world building, it, it is a broad topic. If you're new to it, there's a lot of ways you can come to it. One of the first things to think about is what kind of story are you telling? Are you working on a cohesive world for an RPG campaign like we talk about all the time? Because if so, that's super groovy. But there's a bunch of other things where world building is going to come in too. You could be writing a book, a story, working on a film or a screenplay. You could be working on game design and story design for a video game. Anytime you're creating the setting for a story, you're world building, right? Even if you're just writing a comic strip, if you're writing a small little three panels every week comic strip about a guy named John who goes to high school, you're just covering <laughs> teen drama and stuff. Yeah. Every detail that you come up with about that high school to make it seem like a high school, you're going to take exaggerated foibles like lockers getting stuck, et cetera, and you're going to blow them up bigger because it's a comic strip. All of those details you come up with to keep the setting consistent from frame to frame, class to class, after school activity to after school activity, all of that is world building. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. The art of world building or being a world builder is within you as the author, right? It's like anytime you tell a story that in your head has any sense of cohesion to any other story you've ever told before, that's world building. Even if you are not sitting down and making a map or listing out characters or making a city, remember that all of these stories exist in your own head. Even if they're just about various characters, say like John the high school student, all that kind of thing. All the characters that John the high school student interacts with, that's John's world. And John's world comes from you as the author, as the person that's creating that. So don't think for a second that's not world building. That's probably the most important part of world building is that you are telling stories that have some sort of connection 
to themselves. They don't have to have a connection to anything else. Like, it doesn't matter what else they're connected to, but they are connected through you. You are, right. if the world that you are building is the wheel, you are the, the, the hub of that wheel. And all of the stories that you're telling are the spokes. So they're just what run between you and the world that you have crafted on the outside. They're the connective tissue between the big world that you may not even know that exists and you as that author. So that's world building at its finest. It's completely up to you where you want to start. My suggestion, if you're new to world building, is to start bottom up, start small and work out. Unless you've got like just an idea for a world kicking around in your head with immense detail already. If you've never done world building before, if you're just beginning, the amount of detail that can be involved if you're trying to create, as an example, a full fantasy setting is overwhelming, right? But it's all about scale. Because again, going with a smaller example, if you're writing a story about your cat and its life in your house, its whole world is your house. So that's a much smaller scale of world building than you're going to have to worry about if you're talking about a teenage vampire slayer a la Buffy acting in the modern-ish real world. Yeah, lots of it already exists for you, but everything that you create about your mythos, that's world building for that story as well. If you go big... It's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of detail. But if you start small, if you're working with a character that really speaks to you and their story and say you, you've got an idea of the town they came from or the family unit they came from, from there, you're just asking questions. You're like, okay, so what is this town like? Is it? And you can look up online all kinds of guides that are going to give you categories to think about, but you can think about everything from, do they grow everything here? Do they have any trade in and out? If so, what kind of trade routes do they have? How was it governed? If you're staying focused on the character for a hot minute, where's their favorite places within their village or town to hang out? And as you ask these questions and also work on your story, because you don't have to do all of this in a vacuum before you even start writing, you're going to slowly start filling in details. And once in their story, they're ready to leave that town. They're ready to move on. They reach that point in their character arc where it's time to head out into the rest of the world. By this point, you've probably got some ideas of where you're going, but all you really have to focus on is where they're going next right now. And that's going to keep you sane. Awesome. So much of what you've said fits into my process. I was actually going to save this bit for last, but because I really but wanted to dive into the why get into building your own worlds first. But I'm going to jump right because you've started us off so strongly. I'm going to jump right into that and hopefully expand on that a little bit without too much repetition. There was really three stages of world building that I went through as a game master before I got to the point where I feel I am today. But that final evolution, which was probably 15, 20 years ago when I think I really got there, actually right around the time I was finally building the Shadows of Power live action game. And I had done some really strong world building style campaigns and stuff, but really Shadows of Power was one of the first games that I started essentially from scratch. I basically had the game system info and then everything else was me. And as a live action game, as opposed to letting people build their own characters, I built and wrote in the course of about six months, I think 115 or 120 different characters for that game. So that was really my first from scratch world building scenario. The one thing I did and a guiding point for me is Build what you know. So for me, playing in a semi-modern or modern-esque game, The World of Darkness, I decided to set it in Boston. Why? I lived there for several years, so I knew it. I had a real good feel for Boston, so I could World of Darkness up this, this world pretty easily. One of the first things you do, I came to when it was time to start building my own world was decide the kind of genre I want to play in. The, decide the kind of genre I want. This was my how-to phase because you're going to build different kinds of worlds for different kinds of genres. You're going to have different kinds of games for different types of genres. In my case, World of Darkness, that genre is, horror, is largely set. It's a semi-horror. It's a dystopian feel, but it has that modern and authentic, uh, legit edge that is modern era gaming. 
with some elements of the fantastical. Obviously, the supernatural was big in this world, so you could bring in some of the horror elements. You can bring in some of the more fantastical elements if they were involved or what have you, and, and um, the fictitious spirituality that goes along with that game system. That was the genre I was going to do. So that made it easy to go next. So with your genre, it determines what kind of world you're going you're gonna to build, what kinds of characters. When you're playing Vampire the Masquerade, your characters are flawed, right? They're, in many cases, the vampires are monsters. They, yeah, by definition, yeah. ha- have ha- they're humans who have made a catastrophic error or extraordinarily bad choice. Right. So you have to play on that ish. Right. So from the good evil perspective, the game is set up. Vampirism is not a good thing. Right. It is a problem. That's why they call it the beast. You're fighting against the beast. So there's a reason for that. So in that regard, you have to build kinds of characters that have those inherent flaws. There's got to be something that trips them up. There's got to be something that they covet so greatly that they would do things that they wouldn't normally want to do in order to get that which they covet. So you build characters or in the case of a tabletop game, you allow your players or you suggest through your session zero and through your other conversations to build those flaws. So you've got to play up on those types of things in that kind of genre. So generally figure out your genre, figure out the world, figure out the kinds of characters Next, go to your game system. I will say sometimes the game system determines the genre. Sometimes the genre determines the game system. Those can be slightly interchangeable depending on what you're looking at. But in tabletop games, there are a lot of systems that can handle multiple types of genre. I'm looking at Powered by the Apocalypse. There are a number of different builds for 5e compatible games that can handle multiple types of genres. Some of those may require heavier lifting than others. Your mileage may vary. The last thing that I do when I'm getting into that type of game is I figure out the scope and time frame of the campaign. Is this going to be a wide spanning, like we should be playing for years, we're running levels 1 through 20 kind of campaign? Is this a short term, we're just going to play for a tier, this is the local level kind of game? Or are we picking up somewhere in the middle? Are we playing on a regional level? Or are we playing big armies? Determine that scope that you're going for. Doesn't mean you have to stay in that, but... That helps to set what you're doing. It helps me build the world appropriately if I have an idea of the scope I'm in for. Some of that gets informed by a session zero, by the way. That's, that is an intriguing point that it sounds like you're very much kind of treating world building on almost like a, like a campaign by campaign level. Like you're deciding what the genre is going to be, the system is going to be, you're approaching it when I'm starting something new. You're, it's almost like you're treating it as if it's a brand new world. And I think that I would challenge on that a little bit, if only because I think that all of us have, for better or for worse on some level, developed our own sort of stereotypical characters, the kind of characters that we play every time that we pick up the dice. You play a lot of rangers. You play a lot of those types of yep. uh, subterfuge type characters, stuff like that. We've joked before about how how every character that I play is on some level a reflection of me from 1995, right? So that's like that kind of thing. And, and Glenn, you've got the Dwarven Maker persona, which is, it's it has reflections in a lot of the characters that you play, but it's definitely there. You know what I mean? My, my favorite races are, just to get specific about the kind of characters I always play are dwarves, yeah. halflings, and gnomes. You'd almost think I've been tall my whole life and wondered what it was like <laughs> to be short. Exactly, right. I love you playing know, the short, tiny races. I can and, help and so, you with that. And, and, and so, and this isn't like a serious challenge. I'm not worried about drawing a yellow card or anything like that. But I would say that I think that knowing you and knowing how you're building worlds <clears throat> that or, or how you are world building you aren't building distinct worlds every time. You may be even building a different dimension within the same within the world that you have already crafted within your melon, but mm-hmm. it's not it is not totally separate. It is a reflection of time. And so like when you talk about like time period and how long it's going to run, I think that for me they feel like reflections of the same world that we've been playing in for 30 years. And so I I think that I think that there's more interconnectivity there that I think you're giving yourself credit for. So you're probably right, but part of that is that mental thought process that I go through when I'm deciding the game and the scope. So depending on what I'm doing. So if I go into, let's say I've moved and I'm going into a brand new city and I find a local game store that has open tables or tables that I can go and sign up boards for new players. 
I'm not trotting out my old Greyhawk game, even if it's in its newest in, in, interaction. I won't do that. I won't necessarily start in that situation of long, wide spanning scope of a game. When I moved back to Connecticut and I started going to the Citadel, the first game I I ran was a Rifts game. Granted, based on Glenn's game world, so he already started it. But what I did was I ran a mercenary campaign that was designed so each mission would be separate so that all players were transient. Now, because of where I was playing, I knew I had to design something that could have transient players. I wouldn't have players that played all the time. So my scope and time frame was largely set. It was going to be episodic. And I had to write adventures that would be played in one single day game session. I did not want game sessions to go over two weeks because I couldn't be guaranteed to have a player come back the second week. So right. once the scope was decided, then I had to figure out what's the best way to get a, a, a transferring cast that changes. Honestly, in my experience, the best way to do that is a military campaign. And so I decided if I'm going to do a military campaign, what kind of game do I want? I wanted to play Rifts. Glenn already had this big world already built, so a lot of the heavy lifting was done. So I extrapolated from there, and I went with the Rifts campaign built on mercenaries in a separate area of the Rifts world that Glenn had created. But I started with the scope informed the genre. That then informed the of the options where I had time because I had to do this pretty quickly, basically. That told me it had to be a game system I already knew very well, and the world was largely already built, so I went from there. I would say something else that helped you out in that situation, though I had done the world building of the overall o- overarching connections between the FTA from the, from the Ashes Alliance and the Coalition and the other organizations in North America. But one other thing you did aside from scope is earlier I mentioned scale. You also, because you didn't have a whole lot of time, wisely set your starting scale small, one island. Just the base and starting area is all you had to have detailed by the time we were ready to run. And ostensibly, it was going to take us a while to get off of that island. So that yep. gave you plenty of time on working on where we were going next. So yeah, definitely scope in terms of how far you want it to reach, but scale of like your opening area, your uh, subworld is also important. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is It's not that you were crafting an entire world out of the primordial clay. You were basically making episodes in a bottle. They all happened on an island. They were all that you had to define what that island was and you had to know every, and everything that happened on that island was self-contained. So that island in itself was the world that supported the stories right. that you were telling. Exactly. But news from the outside world came in too, which was cool. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want to go too deep right here in this initial phase, but a lot of what you just mentioned, Glenn, was what I was going to say for my parting comments on the episode, because I do think there are specific steps in order that I go through when I world build. I'm going to Mm -hmm. save that for summarization because we'll talk about individual pieces all all throughout. But I would say definitely first is that genre, system, scope, scale. Once I figured out those things, world building informs itself to a certain extent, whether I'm starting from a given P or a given game world such as what you have. Or even if I start, say, in Greyhawk, my first D&D games, basically, I started with Greyhawk. There was an adventure we played that was in Greyhawk, had a spot on the map. I was like, okay, so if that's where it is on the map. And there's this town that was very barely expanded on. And then it's let's talk about that town more. Who's in that town? So each adventure just gave me another person in the town or another thing around there. Like after a while, oh, we went up to such and such a falls afterwards, just expanded on that piece. It started, like you said, very local, very adventure based, and then expanded as I go. So a lot of my world building is through the game and really just listening to my players. If they like an idea, my next couple adventures, I guarantee you I will go back to that idea. If your plot points or areas or anything they bite on and they're leaning towards, that's where you want to start dressing it up. Absolutely. So I want to throw out really quick the three general types of world building because there's different approaches. And then I want to ask you guys, what's your go-to? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because you got – Essentially, three ways you can do it. You can do it bottom up, where you start small with 
a, char- a couple of characters and a town and you build your way out as they expand, right? You got top down where you start really macro and you're looking at the world and you're saying, okay, what kind of world is it? What's the climate like? You're defining continents and working your way down. And then there's all over the place, which is where you do some from up high, some from down low, you play in the middle a little bit and then yeah. decide on somewhere else, which yeah. is generally the way that I wind up doing it. It depends on the story. Some stories want to be written top down or bottom up, but most of the time I wind up all over the place because I'll have an idea where I start, but that's going to thread off in so many directions. Yeah. So Luminic, you talked a lot about kind of your origins as a world builder and kind of the phases that you've gone through to get to where you are now. I think that when I was, when I was younger and when I was building new worlds, that my process was just utterly chaotic. It was chaotic and experimental, right? I was crafting, and I think on some level I have I've retained this a little bit, although I handle it better than I did when I was younger. But they were, like, the stories that I were telling were so freaking wackadoodle. They were, like, like, to the point that they would lose internal cohesion, right? That it was tough for them to make sense, or that they were, that they would pigeonhole and kind of railroad players into a specific, like, the worst kind of pigeonholing where it's, if the players don't say the exact right thing, they'll never be able to solve the puzzle because there's only one right. solution, that kind of thing. And so I think that over time, I have dropped those bad habits while still keeping the sort of chaotic flair that very much has become my storytelling style I think in general I think that I think back to the very beginning of Arch Enemies when we opened with everybody in, in the carriage there and how like ostensibly we were just running the first of the Candlekeep mysteries but for, for almost two hours at the beginning of that recording it went totally off the rails because I had this idea to go ahead and bring things in and then all of a sudden all these other plot elements started coming in right, right. And so I, the chaotic flair is something that I really like I like being chaotic with my creation and I'm thinking that I'm, I channel it better. But to answer your question, what that means is that I am very much in the middle where I'm coming in when, because again, I feel like the world that is Josh's stories live in my head. And that when a new story comes out, it's then my job to go ahead and say, okay, here's the thread of the story. Where are the tendrils? How does it connect to other things that I have done? Oh, remember that remember that werewolf game that I ran in, you know, nineteen in ninety nine when with that oh yeah, that was really the same thing. So what can I draw from that? Or or remember remember when we played the real thing and when I was had that like that whole line there and the connections between Lou and Nick and I because we were in high school together and blah blah blah. All those sorts of things. These all kind of all these stories exist as the great yarn ball that's in my head. And so when a new story comes to me, it is about figuring out how does that how does that new thread worm its way into the ball? I I I don't start top down. I think if I was going to go ahead and pick between the two kind of extremes, the top down and the bottom up, I think I'm probably closer to the bottom up because of where I'm starting with stories. I'm starting with stories, which means I'm starting with people or ideas or a town or a village or a lake or honestly, a, a me footstep. Too. You know, I said I'm always in the middle, but no, it's bottom down, da- yeah. bottom up to in the middle because yeah, somewhere the story always starts with something specific, and that's usually yeah. down in the micro level. Yeah. And I'm not sure that I necessarily make it all the way up to the top either. Like, if we think about the top, am I talking about like a planet or a pantheon or stuff like that? Like, young Josh definitely did. Young Josh definitely concerned himself with the concept of pantheon and, and macro world type stuff. And now I'm realizing that, man, you know, all that stuff that nobody ever gets to, like, is important, but it's not important for it to be so fully fleshed out that I need to I have an encyclopedia of Josh's right. world on my shelf here that I have to go flip to page 536 about who the god of agriculture 500 years ago was, that kind of thing. Like that's And kudos to the people that can do that. And I think about Benito and the amount of content that he has in all of the Alanis campaigns that I've run over the last... 20 plus years. I don't, I do not know how he does that, how he retains that, but that's a whole separate. As one of the people who helped uh, catalog from gathered documents for our recent live streams. And it took me days to go through it and cross reference with multiple notes from multiple old computers. It's a beast. 30 years of consistent world building because he's just continued working in the same environment. And that's the answer to that question of how he does it. He actually started quite small. It's just every time he's had players interact with the game, they add another piece. And he's just done a fairly good job of keeping it documented. So now, 30 plus years in, we have 560 different pages or a 
14-page bullet-pointed timeline for the game world, where almost every entry is something that a group of players played to, right. to have that entry. They're like, there's very little, this just happened. I think there might be, basically every campaign started with, and this is what happened in the last 30 years, everything else in, the, in, in those games. And there's been probably 15 or 16 campaigns in that time frame. Other than that, every other entry out of those 14 billion pages or whatever uh, is uh, player-created content, which is awesome. So that's the answer to the question. Started small, built up. The scale of that, that it is now, and the fact that it didn't start that way is really important because this is a beginning world-building episode for those of you out there listening to us to understand. Benito's world, he has been building from a smaller micro scale up, literally for those 30 years we've been talking about, adding consistently. Even if you're trying to create one big overall world to publish your own campaign setting, Unless you spend 30 years creating stories in it, it might not be, and you might not need as many details as Benito has in order to tell your story. Right. Yeah. To be fair, anybody could pick up if they had that timeline, say, oh, this sounded interesting. Tell me about this one place, and I'm going right. to run a campaign there, and you wouldn't need a hardly anything else in the entire history other than the things that relate to that area and some overall notes, and you could run with it. If I'm answering that question – Top down, bottom up, or somewhere in the middle. Again, to me, it comes back to scope and scale and timing. So a little history, I was world building long before I started playing tabletop games. One of the first world building exercises that I did, which actually plays into stories that I still tell from time to time, is I loved the anime Star Blazers. It was one of my all-time favorite shows as a kid. And I loved it so much that when Legos first came out with Space Legos, I built a ship which was supposed to be the Argo. And I got Lego minis and in some cases painted them so that they would be specific members of the Argos crew. They were part of the Star Blazers show. And for years, if I played with my Legos, I was literally doing fan fiction of Star Blazers. So some mm. of my earliest world building was simply fan fiction expanding on an existing IP. I played with those Legos and to the point where my 17-year-old was probably 12 and – We were looking through some of my old Legos that were in storage at the time, and I took them out, and I had all of my minis uh, lined up in order because they were mustering in order of their squadrons and their groups, like some of those great scenes in Star Blazers, and I could still, 40 or 35 some odd years later, tell the name of every single Lego character in order because I would do things like they might have a different kind of hairpiece or they might have a different kind of epaulette or slightly different uniform or whatever the case may be. And I can tell you the names of every single one. And I largely would build something and never take it apart again. And I could tell you what ships, the blue squadron, which were my pilots flew. I could tell you where the, 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 the line officers who were the bridge crew officers were when they lined up in front of their entire divisions and departments. And I could do, that for blue squadron red squadron yellow squadron i had uh, a security police which is totally fanfic for me into star blazers because i liked the space police that they came out with in the mid 80s uh Mm -hmm. and i had them in there and i had all their names and i did that so my first world building was just expanded fanfic i did the same thing with gi joe my favorite gi joe cartoon episode was the one where short fuse and steeler crossed into the multiverse and went to that other world. And then Steeler and Short Fuse chose to stay there. After everybody had the ability to bring them back, they chose to stay in that world and help them go on. That was such an important episode to myself and Marty, a friend and uh, good friend of ours and friend of the show, Marty Napier, that all of our G.I. Joe games that we used to play as young kids and teenagers were based on that single episode, expanded fanfic. We did generations of the G.I. Joes that came from Steeler and Short Fuse going to that world. Hmm. I was doing generational gaming, yeah. and we even tried to build a, a tabletop game at that time for G.I. Joes based on our G.I. Joe games, as a matter of fact was based on expanded fanfic. So I've always started with an existing world and then built it from there. 
Live on Kickstarter now, our next book, The Traveler's Guide to Factions, will add depth to your world setting or character's backstory, bringing you all the tools you need to make your next role legendary. Our nine fully detailed factions can be used in any campaign and can be tailored to fit multiple genres and time periods. The system agnostic lore takes you deep into the foundations of each faction and provides guidance on how to seamlessly integrate them into your game system and society. Plus, the book includes an entire chapter containing all the tips, tricks, and processes you need to craft your own factions. Combine all that with the amazing art that we have commissioned and the additional content from our stretch goals, Traveler's Guide to Factions will be a book you don't want to miss. Check it out on Kickstarter now by going to www.ttjourneys.com slash kickstarter. I do not think that you and I have ever had this conversation before, and you and I did not grow up together, but it probably does not surprise you to learn I did the exact same thing. I would do it more. It sounds like you did it like a very active, like you would play entire scenes. I did it very much static. Like the last thing that I would do before I went to school every day, I had my GI Joes. They were like out on like when we lived in, in, in down the South shore, they're out on the back porch and they had like the terrain and everything like that. And every day I would advance them like 10 or 15 minutes through the plot line and then leave them there. So that the next morning I had like 10 or 15 minutes to play with my GI Joes before school. So I would advance them through the plot line, whole nine yards. And eventually I would do the same thing with Lego goes too, where it's, I would either, I had the whole racetrack storyline for a while where I was like making cars and there was like auto racing going on. It was a very kind of strange thing, but yeah, like I did the exact same thing to the point that I actually, cause I had the, like the, the like the French revolutionary fighters. I had that whole, like the whole Eldorado line. They, I guess they weren't French. They were Spanish. I suppose the whole Eldorado line. I loved it. Like the kind of fan, like fancy building, like, like Polynesian buildings, everything like that. And I had like an, I wrote an entire choose your own adventure book to go along with those characters. Totally wrote these my two own, things happened choose your own adventure when yeah. I was younger too. I, I, I have similar that. stories, but not quite the same. Yeah. I tended to work on smaller scale scenes as opposed to full on massive troops and armies. And it started with Star Wars figures and working off of the Moss Eisley spaceport and yeah. coming up with the stories of what they were doing back before I got into role playing. The first one was about, and I don't know if either of you will even recognize this, but there was an early anime cartoon called g-force that i was super into battle of the planets seven zark seven mark thank you uh, there you go Leop, tiny jason <laughs> uh-huh. and i always forget the girl's uh, name pr- the, the uh, pink. yeah i cannot remember her name for the life of me which is a ter- huge crush on her Adjective. by the way when i was younger huge, first yes. cartoon character was, awesome. was the pink g-force person but i told stories with them all the time and i didn't even have g-force figures i would pretend that other things that i had were them and so I think on a scale basis, I'm not sure exactly why. Part of that was just the way Marty and I threw down. We were starting to play D&D regularly. So we would literally decide at the beginning of the week which days we were going to D and which days we were going to play G.I. Joe's. And if it was especially during the summer uh, on a rainy day, we would divide the day. Half would be for D&D. The other half would be for G.I. Joe's. Or And sometimes we'd do stories with our Matchbox cars. But we were constantly playing full scenes, full episodes, full scenes seasons or whatever generations basically what in the D world our campaign so we were always designing worlds we were always building on these worlds and that's just what we did and they got more complicated as we got older. I loved adding battle injuries to G.I. Joe's. I think I had somebody that I had used wire snips to cut like halfway through their head and rammed one of Snowjob skis like halfway in there and glued it in place. Yeah. Crazy creative stuff. It was a whole lot of fun. Yep. Little did we know that that same energy applied to minifigures and then painting would then be like huge things in, in, in our adult life. But that's it's essentially like an evolution. What, yeah. It, and that's what it is. So I think to a large extent, to bring us back to the the topic of the night for me world building has always been an evolution i started with that fanfic expanded and i got into that at some point i went on to just straight up adapting 
a show I like as opposed to expanding from that show. So yeah. when I look back at those days in the, on the South Shore and I used to watch the Force 5 cartoons were on there. The Wednesday show was Space Keteers, which is based on the Three Musketeers, one of my favorite novels of all time. And I can tell you that I used to take Playmobil action figures and play that out in a world, but I didn't do Space Keteers. I simply had three other characters with other names that filled those same roles as Authos, D'Artagnan, Aramis, and Porcos was what he was called in Space Keteers, not Porthos. It's called Porcos because they made him a big chunky right. guy. It was, but it was so long ago that they were worried about, about, about copyright infringement for Cervantes. Dumas, actually. But I, uh, yeah, I no, you're right. It, uh, is ooh, that how you pronounce I, it? Dumas? Yes. Uh, Are you sure? Alexander Dumas. <laughs> yes. I am yeah. exceptionally sure on that. But Cervantes would have been Don Quixote. But Correct. Yeah. I got into just changing the type of story and making it my own. An expansion of that is when I started playing Palladium games and I expanded a little bit of expansion of IP from Glenn's Recon game. When I started doing Strike Team Magnum in Palladium, I love James Bond action films. I love James Bond. I love that style of action films. I loved Die Hard. I love all those types of things. So my game world basically said... All those great 80s action films that didn't involve aliens or fantastical sci-fi stuff, all those cop films, all those cop shows, whether it be Magnum P.I., Castle McCormick, Beretta, all those SWAT, all those shows, they're all real. They are real characters, real people. So my team couldn't be them. But if they traveled to that city, they could meet those characters. And that's where I started my Strike Team Magnum game from back in the day. That's when I started saying, let these other shows, let these other experiences inspire me to create my own thing with that as a world builder. That's also when I started not prescribing characters to other people as much, but saying, hey, build your character in a world where James Bond is legit. You could be part of MI6. You could be part of the CIA, or maybe you could be part of this one organization faction that I created of the Justice Foundation, which was basically an inspiration from the character in All White with the eye patch from Airwolf. I just love the fact that this super rich guy wanted to do good, and he would hire people to do all these fantastic things. So I'm like, what if I had a character like that? And I actually had the character wear white. He did not have an eye patch, but he wore all white and he founded the Justice Foundation. So players could come from that organization as well. And I just created adventures for them to go on in a James Bond mission style. You were talking about your evolution, right? You were talking about how you have continued to go ahead and evolve. And you were talking specifically about how you would bring in kind of pop culture references and that they existed right. as like a backdrop to other games that you were running and where you're bringing other people. Absolutely. So I, I always wanted to give people a, a connection to a game. If I'm building a world, I want them to have an idea of the tone. This part of my evolution really started in the years before Session Zero was a thing. So I couldn't discuss tone. We didn't have X cards or anything like that where people, this is the kind of game I'm going to run. I think I more intuitively said, hey, this game world is like X. And if you watched this show or that show, you'll have a good idea of the type of game I'm trying to run. When I didn't have that at my backdrop, Glenn, you were a uh, party to me always having music on hand in my games. I was notorious for having two or three boom boxes around my game table with stuff queued up on cassette or CD if we got later on in time because that's how I set mood in various games is this gives you the type of tone I'm going for. Because I didn't have the language, we didn't discuss games, certainly not tabletop games, in terms of genre at the time. We just said, hey, let's get together and play this game. And if the, if the genre wasn't intuitive to the game, say you're playing GURPS, then you had to say what kind of GURPS. Oh, we're going to play GURPS Super. Or we're going to play GURPS Play Anything You Want, so it's a mishmash. Or whatever the case may be. If we're going to play Rifts, I'm like, oh, we're going to play Rifts Mercenaries. Or we're going to play Rifts. It's going to be a coalition game. But you guys are against the coalition, or you're in the coalition, but you realize they're bad. So you're basically, you're trying to defect from the coalition, or what have you. So, like, we didn't have great language for that type of thing at the time. So for me, I used a shorthand with my world building music or watch this show and you'll have a good idea i did a couple games in the coalition where i said 
picture your Rutger Hauer in the movie Fatherland, or for those who've read the book, mm. great read, by the way, Fatherland. That's the kind of coalition game. Picture your Rutger Hauer's character in Fatherland. You finally figured out that these guys are not who you thought they were. You bought the propaganda. Now you see what they're really about. And now you're trying to expose them so you have something so you can go to another nation and they'll accept you because you brought them information and now you're in the most dangerous part of your life trying to get out of the coalition <laughs> and i love games like that that's good stuff for me uh leans into my political flair that i love to get into as well but for me i just needed a shorthand so stories movies Show, television shows and music were usually how I shorthand with, with world building. It's interesting. Okay. So it sounds, again, like all the three of us, while we're talking about like the structure of world building, everything like that, we are aligned that it does begin with the stories that we want to tell. Even if you're talking about like the movies that you want to set as the backdrop in there, that's going to lead you to a particular type of story that you want to tell. You're using that world, but you're making your own little island, kind of like how you did on in your Rift game yeah. when you were talking about the, the Absolutely. world that, uh, that you borrowed from Glenn. It's like the island is totally unique, and it's, it is the entirety of the world that you need to go ahead and make that happen, to make your story happen. Even if it, even if that island exists within a broader scope, you're able to go ahead and really shrink down your world to only the dirt that your characters need to go ahead and and tell the story. And that's important to note. Whatever story you're telling, all you need to develop. That's not accurate. Ninety percent of what you need to develop is what you're going to show, where the characters are going to go, the places they're going to be. So in this instance, just the island. That's where that piece, what they're going to see, is the biggest part. Aside from the information that Lee Wanika had coming in from the outside world for the advances of the FTA alliance and how they were advancing against the coalition, like all he needed, if I hadn't already created that section, was the rumors and things that he wanted to come in. He didn't need to actually define fully the rest of the world out here to run that. If he had, that would have taken a lot more work, and it would have driven him a lot more crazy just to run a campaign focused on this island. Um, so what I want to wanted to emphasize there is world building can be immense. You can go all the way to the size of Benito's world over time, but you only need what you're showing in this story in order to get your players engaged or to start getting words on the paper. Absolutely. A great example of that is what I did in my Land of 18 Seas game, which was a bit of an experiment for me. It's unique in my world building with the caveat. This is a story or an overall story that I wanted to tell based on games that had started back in the 80s with Marty and characters that I played and Marty played back then. But as far as what the players knew and as far as what I built for the game, the only thing I had was the overall, which is... This whole world is relatively small. It is a construct from one of my old characters who is trapped in a world. Think similar to Ravenloft, but this is not Ravenloft. Think similar to a do Domain of Delight, but it is not the Fey Realm. But it's a pocket universe that has just the Land of 18 Seas. Its overarching power is the character I played back in the 80s. But he is fairly disconnected and he is out of his mind. So he's actually three separate personalities. The only power in this world is that old magic user that I used to play. I then said all of your, your characters, no matter what kind of character you want to play, anything else that you want, but you're all orphans that grew up in an orphanage together. You are all siblings. You grew up together. You love each other, all those types of things. I've talked about it a little bit on, in the show before. Many of our episodes have delved into this. But the only thing I built, and I didn't build any maps for it, the only thing I built was their parents, the makeup of the orphanage, and I think I came up with a random number for how many kids were still there, and I mentioned the fact that there was at least – 30 or so kids that went before them, and there are a bunch of infants that are in, the, in there now, and they're the ones who are in their teen and just post-teen years who are ready to adventure. And the only thing I built for that world is I went on Donjon, and I got a little city square where there's a market, and I had one street corner where the adventure began because one of the local shop owners was being pickpocketed by a bad guy, and the player character saw it, and I said, that's where the campaign began. 
I really built nothing other than that for that campaign. And I let the player characters build their characters. And we started them at zero level. They created their own interactions with each other. They create, they came up on the fly, their interactions with that NPC and two NPCs that I created on the fly. And literally as a chase scene ensued, I drew the rest of that street for them to be chased from there to their orphanage. And then because things went badly, they had to get out of town. So I'm like, you guys got to run. And they're like, is there any place where we can go? So I said, your father has a hunting cabin in the woods three days out of town. And they're like, we're going there. So one of their older siblings who had a cart and a business where to travel from town to town, they drew that. And I said, it's going to be, and I rolled a die and it was Northwest. So I said, three days Northwest is the father's hunting cabinet. And I expanded the map and I put that on notes. The next two adventures were held out at the hunting cabin. And then they're like, okay, we're not going to go back to town. We're going to go to the next town. So they went Northeast and I put a town there and I built that town then. And literally the entire map that is now for the land of 18 seas was made after about a year of gaming where I only built things as they went to them. Yeah. I only created the polities of the area as they got to them and as the story dictated. And when I opened up the second campaign, that's when somebody said, hey, we need to see a map. But they had been gaming in the world enough where I literally just had a scratch piece of paper where I drew it and I could make an outline of what could be the continent based on the number of days travel it was to these things. I handed it to Benito and he developed a map and incarnate for me based on that. I remember when he was on, finishing that map, you were so excited. Yeah. And it was literally <laughs> based on in play. I built what we needed as we got there. Everything in the land of 18 seas, other than those core elements is only there because the players interacted with it in the various adventures that they got into. I've never done anything quite that bottom up. I like the idea and I like the idea of the challenge, but what wind up winds up happening to me is I'll start out where I'm just going to start everybody. When my Boiling Seas campaign first started out, I had this prophesized group of players who appeared unconscious in a John boat mm -hmm. from a, a ship or what have you. And they were all people from the past. They were all dead and had been resurrected to be like the saviors of the world or to, to cause a big change. Short version is I started out just wanting to do that. I'm like, I'll just design stone home because I gave the town a name. And then from there, I'm like, but what kind of society is stone home? And then I started thinking about the government and that took me to how I was going to base the people. And the next thing I've got the capital city of Fairhaven three days to the West. And before I ever got to the first game, it, it expanded yeah. i've never been able to hold it that small it always gets because i'm all over the place each thought leads to something else and i'll wind up detailing the wargwood which is a giant forest that's filled with basically unified tribe of wargs but yeah oh yeah that's that is the that is the dual-edged sword that is something that's like like world anvil or or something like that is that they are so great at allowing you to document the things that you've created but all of their prompts are so good and they're so detailed that they for somebody like me they spin me off into a million different directions what who is the mayor of this town and how'd they become the mayor and what's their influence like and what's their family like and are they from the town originally or did they move here finally finished chasing yeah. that thread you suddenly you realize that originally all you were trying to do was come up with a backstory of where they adopted their dog and you don't really know how you got <laughs> totally. to where you well, exactly, up. Yeah. In, in the end <laughs> that's why i stopped using world anvil because i kept going down those threads and i would show up at my game not prepared because i couldn't get focused on what i needed to prepare and i found that worked really well for me and josh you say that we're not doing that but to a certain extent that's exactly what we're doing with the star trek game we are really plot. We are. We have a rough framework for the entire season, and we are planning the next episode sometime in the middle of or at the end of prep for the episode that we're about to record. So we're really doing this ground up, albeit in an existing IP, but we're really doing this ground up world building as far as the region. An existing IP, but Aslan Station. Is and in an indie home world. That's all space that you have built. That is world yeah. building. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, and it's we've, away we've from where another island. Yeah. Yeah. We it's away from where other stories have been, but close enough where there's some through lines and threads and we can explain 
travel, transit, all those things. But we're off on our own. We're on the fringes of frontier space. I think it's no accident that a lot of really good IPs start with on the fringes of space. Yeah. Out, like DS9. Let's go to a part of the Alpha Quadrant that we haven't seen or talked about before and right. build our story. Yep. Voyager, sure. let's go to a part of the galaxy that we haven't yeah, seen or dealt with. Let's start in an area of the galaxy we haven't seen before. Discovery, when did it, you know, it, it? let's hit a time frame that we haven't talked about before. Now let's go to a time that we're never going to see directly. I think there's a reason why these things keep coming up. It's go to the space where there isn't things done, but stay within an existing universe or within an existing IP. I think that's part of what makes that work. And I think it's what we're doing now. And we're just building naturally to the fact that it's hard to keep yourself contained. It absolutely is. It is hard (laughs) to not overcreate. So my answer to not overcreating the world is I simply run another game in the same game world. So when right. I started doing Drinking and Dragons, they had barely touched the the southern oceans, the seas and the islands there. And I thought it was, oh, man, I wanted to create and I wanted to create. But I'm like, I don't want to do what I don't need to prep. That didn't seem right to me. Three times a year, four times a year, I ran the Wake Runner series where it was all about a ship that was traveling those islands i had two adventures in in my main game and then i had the wake runner series which has run i think six separate sessions six separate one shots my one shot series in this other area when i wanted to talk about adrian in the north and and how it was cool and there's different things i wanted to learn and draw out from that area i went back to drinking and dragons had a group ran what was supposed to be a one shot there we didn't finish the one shot because it was really good role play. We got back together a couple weeks later, finished that one shot, and they're like, we got to do this again. That became my Northerners campaign. The Northerners campaign, And right. so that world is being built with them doing it. So I simply, hmm. anytime there's a world, a part of the world I want to talk about more, I just start a new campaign there, and I let players right. inform it. Hmm. And there you go. It's multiple party world building as you work in different areas and bring it up. Yeah. So you're doing bottom up in a bunch of different spots at once and letting it all fill in. I'm also splitting that work with characters informing with their backstories, with mm -hmm. what they want to bring into it, the things that they want to touch on. So I build characters for the character. So it does start. You mentioned it earlier. Start with characters. Don't build a game world without your players. Don't get much beyond the genre system scope and scale until you start talking with characters and start players and start building characters, then build what they need for their backstories and for that initial adventure or two do that. And the world building will really jump into its own and it'll make it a lot easier, especially for newer GMs. And with time and experience, you're going to get better and better at it. And you're going to start bouncing around more and you're going to start coming up with your own ideas on how you want to approach it. And that's a good thing. I couldn't do what we'll be doing within the next couple of years. I don't want to put a time frame on it, but at some <laughs> point we're going to have to expand our world building to make sure we hit that macro level as we get ready to put out our first campaign setting at some point, as an example. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't start out trying to write a fully detailed campaign setting when I was first world building. I just wouldn't have been ready. It's not to say it couldn't be done, but it, oof, it would have been a lot of work and it would have taken a yep. lot of time and yep. it probably would have driven me to the brink of madness but looking at it now start especially since we'll start with bones of things we've already created it doesn't seem yeah. as intimidating and so with nope. with I, practice with experience you'll feel yeah. better about it I, I think with the three of us tackling it i think we'll be okay but yeah we're going to get into the weeds <laughs> on the world building aspect when we go ahead and dive into that for sure well, so i think if you're building a campaign setting the weeds is where you have to live i think there's no surprise that a campaign setting book has to have is largely broken into a player section, a GM section, and then a bestiary section. I think it's done that way for the simplicity of creation. Like that way, when we're working on the timeline of the campaign world, we don't have to go into details. We hit the timeline and we can highlight all the things that we need to bring out in other sections. And then when you start building your GM section, that's going to be like, here's one major town for each major area that we're talking about. 
uh, here's the major biomes that we're go- that are in the game world, but we're only detailing one, maybe two of them in in your initial campaign setting. And our and our DM section will have lots of world building questions for the DM sure, to help them yeah. give them ideas for how to flesh it out. Yeah, I can almost picture it. I'm excited for when we tackle it. It'll just yep. be our biggest project uh, ever, and we're not quite there yet. Yeah. But I mean, but, but there's <laughs> a quite. number of things. There's a number of things that go into that. Then it's and then on the player side, it's like, what are all the backgrounds that are unique to our campaign setting? What are all the feats that are unique to our campaign setting? What are all the everything else that's unique do we have spells that are unique whatever what are the magic items that are unique to our campaign setting that's that player section then the beast here what are the generic stat blocks for the various people in various areas here what are the beasts and the creatures and the supernatural creatures and the natural creatures that one could come across there's a lot there and when you go to a campaign setting you're building a lot but at the table especially for someone starting out you don't need to build the campaign setting book i strongly recommend starting with a campaign setting book that has already been done even though 5e is woefully light on campaign setting books their attempts at it have not come across as campaign settings but there's a lot of campaign stuff they're just they happen to put a lot of it into adventures versus into a setting book yeah. yep. building okay. for 5e pick an existing world and create your own corner of it to start yep yeah you and, know, and whether you want to go with forgotten realms or dragon lance or you want to dive back to greyhawk with older material but use lore that you already are already familiar with and build your piece of it yep use the big world as a backdrop and make your own island yep exactly, exactly. It became a theme throughout the entirety of the episode. That was sure a really did, great example to go ahead and try it out at the beginning because yeah. it's a really great piece of advice. If you're thinking about it, it, it ties right in with the piece that you said too, Glenn, is that like build the pieces that your characters need to see right. and a little bit more. Like that just a, but just a little bit more. Then give and them then a taste of the world beyond. Give them a taste. And, and then once they hit that, then build a little bit more. That's do it gradually. And All don't hesitate that. when you get to a spot and they're like, we want to head northwest. If you don't have a build, don't worry about it. Say, okay, you got to go shopping so you can pack up all your stuff so you can head northwest. Yep. And then you run a rent. If, if there's a lot of time left in your session, run a random encounter to close out the session. One combat encounter will take up the last hour of your game, guaranteed. Oh, you yeah. can always have them start heading off to that area they want to go to. One random encounter, and that's yep. the end of your session there. Now you've got a week or however long between your sessions to plan right. the next. Piece. To buy yourself time to prep. That's good yeah. advice because sometimes you do need to do that. Sometimes you can go on the fly. Sometimes you've got an idea because whether you like it or not, your mind's been thinking about it. You can just spend some stuff out. But when you don't, yeah, throw in a combat that'll and 5e, that'll take up a couple of hours. <laughs> Jesus. And then uh, the next thing, you got two yep. weeks to plan. Yep. Yeah. All right, everybody. Dave, uh, we hope that we answered your question to your satisfaction. I uh, hope that that gives you a good launching you, point here. And please uh, – yeah, and patrons, we love answering your questions on the air. So please keep sending them to us. We love doing these types of episodes, especially these kind of like core world building questions. We want to know what is it that you want us to go ahead and talk about. And I appreciate everybody. Like I said, day one of our Kickstarter is today. It's going to be running through October twenty fourth. If you are interested, go check out the Traveler's Guide to Factions. You heard the the little blurb in the middle of the show about it. We'd love you to go check that out. Next week on the show, we've got the absolute killer interview with the the production staff from Secrets of Blackmore, which is the movie on Amazon Prime right now about Dave Arneson and his contributions to the very earliest days of Dungeons & Dragons. First of all, check out the movie, Secrets of Blackmore. It's fantastic. I've watched it now twice uh, because I watched it the first time and then realized I forgot to go ahead and take any notes. And so I watched it again so I could go ahead and take notes and be able to ask questions when we, when we get them in here for the interviews. It's absolutely fantastic. It's it is so full of so full of things like the wild west of when role playing games and Dungeons and Dragons came about were they were crazy. Uh, if this right. movie can be believed, and I'm sure that it can be, uh, because it was it's all done by interviews, and so but they were just they were crazy times. Like, uh, and it's a, it was a lot of fun. So really, if you play RPGs to, at all, this is definitely part of your roots. Yeah, this movie. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, right. a, wise, a wise person once said, you got to know where you came from in order to make sure where you're going. Yep. Cool. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. Gentlemen, thank you, as always, uh, for joining me this evening. We'll talk to you next week uh, when we bring you the uh, production staff from Secrets of Blackmore. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a good night. 
Good night, all. Later. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at TT Journeys, joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. Our full episodes come out every week on Friday, and every Tuesday features actual play and gameplay showcase episodes. Looking for early access? You can support the show and get episodes before everyone else at www.patreon.com forward slash TT Journeys. Check it out today and see all the awesome benefits we bring to our supporters. Lastly, if you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible, you would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And we bid you fair tides, friends, for Legends Awake.